What's up, everybody? Marshall Media Montage here, episode seven. In the afternoon before I have to go be an adult and take care of some uh, priorities and responsibilities. So if this episode feels rushed, I'm uh, sorry. And my voice is coming back. It's still a little gone, but I'm doing the best I can considering the circumstances. Uh, I will continue with uh, the third side of the double LP of Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life, right where I left off with it. So it's about halfway done, and then I got side four. I'll see if I can finish those two in the event of this podcast. Uh, I'm going to do my last hour of Once Upon a Time in America. I will talk about that. And uh, for it being the seventh episode, I am going to, in the fashion of me feeling lucky, right, I'm going to talk about a band that has the number seven in it, Blink 77. I thought it was kind of a cool uh you know, illusion, I guess, if you will, to, or a simile, similarity to the same number. So Blink 77, Once Upon a Time in America, and I'm going to talk Shredder's Revenge, the Ninja Turtle video game, as well as I'm going to continue relatively on that topic and discuss the PlayStation 1 Classic, the mini console that came out a few years ago. So let's kick it off with Stevie Wonder. Oh yeah, got to finish it, got to finish it, right? Okay. So I left off at Once Upon a Time in America. After the intermission, the gang discusses how they're going to plan their next job. They get a phone call from the crooked politician who they saved earlier in the film uh, from being doused with gasoline and set on fire. He sees a car pull up as he's on the phone and realizes he's a dead man at least, and, you know, in the phone booth, and he leaves Uh you know, running. And luckily for him, he lives, but his leg is rather mortally wounded and uh, the car drives off. <clears throat> the boys here shortly get their revenge, literally in the next sequence, similar to the Trojan horse gag, so relatively similar, uh, right in front of the enemy gang's main location on a some sort of like cart uh, draped over with a sheet. And through the sheets, the only one left standing from the Tommy gun uh, barrage was the uh, boss. They manage a getaway car thereafter and meet up with Jimmy the politician, the guy who was the uh, the guy who got caught, you know, or excuse me, the guy who uh, got his leg uh, shot up. Um, there is a proposition discussed for a job in the hospital with trucks hauling hooch, booze, same thing, during the Prohibition era. Noodles declines and says that he likes work in the streets, admittedly, and walks out. That's a bold move. Uh, next is a pivotal moment in the film, uh, relived a little later. I'll explain then, but bear with me. They're at a beach resort. Noodles, De Niro's character, and Max, Woods' character, talks dreams of a million dollars after robbing a bank. He tells Max he's crazy. Max becomes livid, and Max dumps Noodles' drink in his face and walks towards the water and tells him, don't you ever call me that. His, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought it was my record scratching. It's my cat eating food. I was like, oh no, my record. <laughs> So he tells Max he's crazy. Max dumps Noodles' drink in his face and walks towards the water and tells him, don't you ever call me that. His offense was similar to that of Marty McFly. As in, you know, the no one calls me chicken sequence. You know, shout out to Back to the Future, right? I digress. But this excerpt of the film plays a pivotal and important role a little later. Max walks to the water in silence while Noodles has a face zoom reminiscent of uh, Lucio Fulci's eye zoom, (laughs) as I like to call it. Uh, you know, while he just watches Max. It's a, it's a really actually pretty sequence uh, in spite of the ludicrous character Max being a head case. After the emotional sequence, the uh, Prohibition era is no longer. 
and the gang is in a nightclub and they discuss one <clears throat> one more job and Noodles debates this last uh, bank heist with Max and, and manages to sneak away and calls the feds to tip them off about uh, a heist. So it's out, you know, it's out of the bag now. Since the beginning of the film, he was the rat the entire time. Max knows Noodles has a change of heart. Next shot switches to an older Nero and Max's girlfriend, Carol, with uh, some exposition in a hotel lobby. She conveys that fourth size character went out with guns ablazing. Once again, switch to another De Niro in a play setting, also older De Niro, as he watches from the audience. And, you know, guess who the star is on stage, right? But Elizabeth McGovern's character. They uh, catch up and discuss the Bailey scandal in her uh, back dressing room, and she tells him to go to Max's party and heed her words carefully that, you know, that she never thought that they would see each other again. And she conveys that Max, you know, has something to tell him. And it's just, it's a really cool, uh, you know, display of foreshadowing. So... They discussed that clearly they never thought they were going to see each other again after 30 years and there is a knock at the door and it is a young man named David. She tells him to wait there. Noodles leaves right before he can meet his son, David. I know it turns out that he had a son because of the whole rape sequence. Remember that? I certainly do. And, you know, it is what it is, I guess. Uh, and the son actually happens to be Danny from the first live action T. I mean, T. Wow. I can't even speak English and I fucking love the Ninja Turtles. David happens to be Danny from the first live action TMNT film in 1990, who has a Sid Vicious shirt on the entire aspect of the film for the most part. So shout out to Sex Pistols. Moving on in the office at the party, <clears throat> Max is hosting Woods's character. He tells Noodles De Niro that he's in hot water. And if someone were to kill him, it should be you, Noodles. Or some, I guess, here, I will speak on uh, Max's behalf. If someone were to kill me, it should be you, Noodles. He grabs a pistol from his desk and slides it over to him on said desk. He tells Noodles obscenities to provoke him in his favor. Like, I took your money and I took your girl. And he tells him to do it. And you can leave through this secret door, uh, reminiscent of the Oval Office type secret door. You can only tell because of the crevice that uh, light can escape through the hole in the wall. Uh, secret door in this room, exit to the street, and no one will know that it was you. Noodles calls him crazy for the second time. Max becomes furious because nobody calls him chicken, right? <laughs> he recalls the incident when Noodles said it 35 years ago. The last 10 to 15 minutes left of this film, uh, this is what happens. De Niro stares at the gun and experiences a retelling of his life as it flashes before his eyes to sentimental music. Back to reality. They both realize they have worked together for their entire lives and talk of jobs that they pulled together. Then silence, and nothing pervades past either one of their lips but a slowed-down, jazzy version of Beatles yesterday once again. Uh, Max pulls out the pocket watch from childhood and says it's 10.25 p.m. Do it. Uh, insinuating Noodles to kill him. <clears throat> Noodles admits to being the rat, which we obviously already knew. He turned him forth size character to be killed, and that's what Carol was referring to as far as guns ablazing, and he went out with a bang. He then leaves through the secret exit while Max stares at his watch. Symbolism as in a passage of time with the song yesterday. It's, it's very well done. You know, bravo, Sergio Leone. As well as showing life's regrets in a sense. 
De Niro cautiously walks into the streets and views a garbage truck passing by, staring diligently into the red lights as if Christine, (laughs) the car, is going to kill him, as if he knows he's dead. History repeats itself. Flashback to De Niro. So many flashbacks, but it all makes sense after you watch the entirety of the film. Heading to an opium den as if he never left, orchestrated music ensues. It gets louder as he inhales, smiles at the ceiling, and credits. Yeah, so eight minutes and 20 seconds to reveal the last hour of this film, essentially. The ending, I was not really impressed with, but overall, it's a good film. Just disregard all the gratuitous fornication, except for the portion, obviously, where De Niro sleeps with McGovern in order to produce his son. I feel like that's the only one that really, you know, foreshadows something that will be important later. Everything else was just indiscriminate and not necessary in my opinion you know that's just my opinion i suppose i didn't anticipate those antics but you know i also didn't expect to see joe pesci for only roughly two minutes of the film you know regardless i'd still say watch it it's it's worth your time and as a completionist who likes watching films yes uh you will enjoy it all right last song of side three before i gotta change it over okay As I stated earlier in this episode, in honor of it being my seventh episode, I wanted to, you know, I felt a little lucky, right? So I wanted to give you a little excerpt of Blank 77. stuff in my opinion of course and for said viewers in my audience back to a little bit of stevie all right so let's roll with the number seven as i stated i could have you know done coverage of the film seven with brad pitt or lucky number slevin but i felt it was a little too cliche in my opinion so i wanted to go off on a different venture with a punk band you know briefly that i know many probably know their logo for average punkers or have heard of this uh, particular band from the 90s but don't listen to them and they are called blank 77 that was off their album tanked and pogoed the song is called crash and burn they're a punk rock band from 1990 to 2001 and i imagined uh, considering their sound that they would be actually an older band they reunited in 2004 and still play <clears throat> based in hillside new jersey relocated to denville and experiences from there, you know, on different labels like uh, Nasty Vinyl, Radical, and Jailhouse Records. They released three albums and when, with numerous EPs appearing on several compilations. I didn't name them all because there's just way too many. They, tour, they toured Europe, and, yes, twice, and in the U.S. with the likes of, get, get this lineup here, The Misfits, Rancid, The Business, Bad Brains, The Bouncing Souls, one Way System, Anti Nowhere League, Dropkick Murphys, GBH or Charge GBH, uh, UK Subs, and Total Chaos. What amazes me if these guys all legitimately got together and toured because it's a punk show and you know a huge venue would probably only be around two hundred dollars or less uh, to see all of that, and I would be so down to go do that. But if I want to go see Pantera with Metallica next year, I have to sell a kidney, refinance my house, and learn how to cut diamonds. So what the hell? Why is it so expensive? I, I don't get it. 
But anywho, you know, anywho, the brand's original name was just the Blanks to avoid conflict since the name was already taken, just like Blink-182, for example, they knew another, or excuse me, they just threw in a number afterward, problem solved, just like Blink, they just threw in 182. Now, shout out to that band too, which the 77 is actually a reference to the canonically uh, year that when punk was accepted as its origin year. Members of AFI, Tiger Army, and the Horror Pops during the early years came and left in Blank 77's uh, lineup. The first album, Killer Blanks, released first in Germany in 1995 and the U.S. in 1996 with four extra tracks. Let me switch the record real quick. making it as real as possible. The Middle Years portion of the band released their second uh, studio album, Tanked and Pogoed, which is the album I first heard uh, from them. Paul Russo, or Russo, however you want to pronounce it, from The Unseen, filled the void in these years for some tours. Come the third album in 1998, CBH. I think it's a play on of GBH. To me, that just makes the most sense. In 1999, the... 1999. Yeah. In 1999, the band dissolves. And since remaining members uh, decided to leave, the bassist during this time formed the New York hardcore band uh, Murphy's Law. Fast forward five years later in 2004, the classic lineup has reunited. The original four actively playing shows on the East Coast with occasional West Coast shows. Releasing their latest album date to date in 2016, Getting Blasted. What a what a title, on uh, Jailhouse Records. A short-lived band, yet reunites more or less uh, with the original lineup because I think this is how I viewed it. I, I think they realized that fighting is futile and just do it for their fans. Just have fun regardless of, you know, bouts of anger and aggression towards one another because of the sense of direction that you want to go in. You know, they still play to this day, as I stated, with the original lineup. It's just quality hardcore that sounds reminiscent of the uh, casualties that meets a uh, slight Irish brogue, per se, that of, you know, dropkick maybe, and sprinkling some rancid, and in my opinion, of course, is listen to it. Go check it out. All right. I'm going to switch up gears to the uh, new Ninja Turtles game, or the newest one that came out, uh, Shredder's Revenge. I can't believe it took me seven episodes to finally discuss <laughs> the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but hey, you know... I, I waited, I suppose. I didn't want to come off as a complete nerd, which, too late. So, it's about damn time, and I feel lucky with the number seven under my belt, TMNT's Shredder Revenge, a beat-em-up slash brawler, essentially the same thing, developed by Tribute Games, published by Dotemu, Do Dotemu? I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. Inspired by and based on the 1987 animated series, it borrows the style of the arcade and home console ports developed by Konami. Released on the Nintendo Switch, Windows, Linux, PS4, and Xbox One. So it's available anywhere. I highly recommend playing it. June 16th, 2022 is when it was released. So it's only about to be five months old. Um, there's about to be as well as a PS5 version released, uh, or excuse me, there is one. It just came out uh, November 15th of this year. So many nods and homages, you know, and just callbacks galore. 
the voice actors from the 1987 are back in the game from the uh, cartoon, the 1987 animated series. It was received favorably, uh, favorably well. The reviews, uh, and as said, those releases are well-deserved. This statement doesn't normally pass my lips, so but it is easily the best beat-em-up I've played to date. Uh, over the arcade classic Turtles in Time game, or Captain Commando, the arcade, or Super Nintendo, or Final Fight arcade, or Super Nintendo, Streets of Rage, Sega Genesis, Golden Axe arcade, or Sega Genesis, or even uh, Alien vs. Predator, and Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, to name a few. This game seriously trumps those, not to say that the ones I mentioned don't hold a special place in my heart, but the mechanics, the graphics, the music, the story, and the boss battles featured from the show... It's just untouchable in that regard compared to anything else. Like, you cannot juxtapose whatsoever. The game sold 1 million copies within its week of release. Uh, the playable roster, the pixel-based visuals are gorgeous. Uh, it's only fault, in my opinion, maybe that, may that the story mode is a little short with only 16 levels. Uh, but on the plus side, all the classic heroes, i.e. Splinter and Casey Jones, are playable and, uh, you know, all your typical well-known cartoon villains from the show are here. I managed to score a copy of the special edition by a limited run, which includes uh, pixel art stickers inside the case, a reversible cover outside the case, art booklet, a redeemable Pizza Hut coupon. Yeah, for real. Uh, and that expires actually at the end of next year, 2023. What is rad is that they clearly, you know, tailored to the fans with the classic edition, you know, and it, the, uh, excuse me, there's a, obviously a, a higher tier edition is what I was trying to say, which includes a retro VHS sleeve, a tape box to store the game and a steel book case. The next higher tiered edition is the radical version featuring a strategy guide, a poster, a shredder action figure, a shadow box, uh, an arcade mini cabinet replica an original soundtrack CD. To close this game out, I have to add that there is a special attack uh, button. Double jump, uh, and you can evade the Foot Clan or bosses with a roll button. There's a taunt mechanism as well on the controller that permits the uh, character to build its charge gauge to use the uh, special attack. It even has RPG relatively you know, light uh, leveling elements that you can level up, uh, have more hearts and uh, unlockable secrets. Uh, if you do the tasks that are asked of you at the beginning of the level, uh, there, you know, there's, you obviously are able to unlock uh, the replayable characters as well as just uh, in-game secrets and so forth. Uh, it's re replayability uh, is just phenomenal because if you can literally beat any one of the uh, 16 levels with any set character you want, uh, including April O'Neil as well. You finally get to play as Casey Jones, which I'm sure as uh, younger boys who watched the show growing up, we all wanted to do. So get out there and play. Like, let's go. It's my it's just a, a really great Ninja Turtle game on a personal level. My favorite has always been Raphael, uh, especially when he yelled damn in the first film that just really stuck with me the rest of my life. And I've always just liked how kind of just nonsensical, goofy he could be in the cartoon, uh, jokingly sarcastic, as well as he could be a hard-ass. Uh, and as far as the video games go, Donatello, hands down, because he has the longest reach. I mean, point, point blank. So 
continuing my topic of video games, uh, I would like to share this with you guys. Doesn't that just bring so much like nostalgia for those of you who know the PlayStation? I mean, come on, man. So, all right. I am talking the PlayStation Classic. Uh, I, I personally own all of the mini consoles, and I would like to talk about them down the road, um, you know, and review them and rank them for you guys. Um, hopefully swaying some of you to purchase and play some of them in the event of doing so. So here it goes. The PS1 Mini Classic is an emulation station and uh, but the actual PS1 itself, the original console, uh, debuted in uh, actually 1984. So fast forward 24 years later in 2018, this device was announced at a Tokyo game show and released near Christmas, December 3rd of 2018. The console has been loosely compared to the stock NES and SNES uh, classic consoles, which had better libraries of stock games. I'll get a little bit to that later, very, very briefly. Its initial release was received poorly due to its weak game library, and it shows. Uh, use of the original controller, because it's just the D-pad without the analog stick, and high price tag considering what was given to you. It sold at nine, uh, $99 or 100 but the same, same thing uh, initially upon its release. The design, though, was praised as it looks uh, original to the original console, just one-tenth of its size. It excluded the popular titles like Wipeout, Crash Bandicoot, Spyro, Tony Hawk, Tomb Raider, and Parappa the Rapper, and even Castlevania Symphony of the Night, which many anticipated it to be within the game library. Arguably just well-known titles for the console that were nowhere to be found within the game library. Almost half of the library in the NTSC, North America version, are PAL European releases, also, the controllers had short cables, and as I said, no DualShock capability. It's just the D-pad. Low frame rates and poor, poor emulation quality. The user interface was nowhere near comparable to the other mini consoles with their intuitive safe state replayability. The safe state is nice to use, but it isn't as easy and applicable to, as the other mini consoles. There is only one, so uh, wow, one slot to save compared to the other mini consoles that feature four slots to save games, each game rather than just one per the PS1. So what do nerds do? They mod and make it better, avoiding, or excuse me, adding external storage. Uh, that would be the only way that I would suggest actually purchasing this thing and playing it, doing that on your own accord any which way you can, uh, finding the game library elsewhere. Overall, it sold 120,000 units in Japan during the four weeks of December Amazon lowered the price to $60 due to its weak sales. There was an oversaturation of production of units, but no revenue. So two months later, Walmart sold it in January as low as $40. And in June of 2019, it was at Best Buy for $20. Shows you how well it was received. But for what it's worth, I, I still love it. And I play it not as minutely as I probably would like to, but... Its interface is definitely the worst out of all the mini consoles. It's just ugly to look at. Uh, at least just when you boot it up, you know. But once you start playing, it's not necessarily so bad. Regardless, if you are a player and a collector, it's, you know, if you find it for under $50, uh, 
with the box, you gotta add the box. I'd say get it for the Final Fantasy VII, Wild Guns, Metal Gear Solid, Rayman 1, Twisted Metal 1, and Resident Evil 1. There are others in the stock library, but I only played these thus far. Uh, like I said, get it for nostalgia's sake. You know, it's, it's well worth your time. So coming in just shy of 25 minutes, uh, I actually do have to get going. I'm glad that I was able to complete this episode, episode 7. I felt lucky, right? With, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, thank you for the support and love. I appreciate everything that you guys do for me, so thank you. Uh, if you want to reach out to me, letz.surf.88 at gmail.com or shazz.boxx.88 at uh, yes, hotmail.com. I almost forgot my own email. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. Have a good day.